on this episode of Risky Business. Nothing is as valuable as someone from the business speaking about why compliance is important, for example. Someone in operations saying, this is important because I experienced this. Or people having been in the car when it's been stopped at a checkpoint and someone tries to get the money. That's really where you get a lot of the value because those people are, they become automatically a champion because they then suddenly understand the issue. They've seen the issue. They can describe the issue and they will talk to their peers about them. I'm Steve Muddyman, and this is Risky Business, a show from GAN Integrity covering the wide range of issues in compliance and ethics with one goal in mind, empowering your people to do the right thing. Getting buy-in on the value of compliance from the rest of the organization is an age-old challenge. But what if instead of trying to convince our people compliance matters, we connected the dots to their individual success? This is the approach Anders Vashovd, VP and Chief Compliance Officer at Seadrill, has taken with a great response from his organization. Compliance has become the conversation rather than a top-down mandate. In this episode, he shares how he's developed genuine collaboration with other leaders across the business. As you listen, think about the way you communicate compliance through your organization. Are you having collaborative discussions and drawing concrete connections to the business? How can you better support your stakeholders' success while using compliance as a tool? Anders, welcome. It's lovely to have you join us today. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Why don't we kick off and tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself and the organization and what you do at Cedra? Thank you, Simon. Absolutely. Yeah, my, my name is Anders Wassel. As you say, I'm Norwegian, but I work out of our London offices. I'm Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer of at Seedrill. Seedrill is a global drilling operator, and the company operates in shallow to deep water across the globe. So we have multinational challenges as well. And drilling is also a very agile business. So, of course, that means quick in, quick out, quick movement quick strategic decision sometime, which brings this particular flavor to some of the compliance challenges that you would have. In my past, I worked for FMC Technologies and Technique FMC and also DNO, which is an oil company in Norway, in similar roles. My background is in law, actually, and I spent the first half career plus in sort of commercial lawyer roles. And then the last 10 years, I spent doing compliance. So I think with the commercial lawyer piece, that, that gives me a sort of help when I look at the business, understand how the business thinks, in particular supply chain and commercial. And I believe it brings good perspective for us when it comes to operations and need for a business like Cedro. I also see the same in my team. I have a bit of cross-functional expertise there as well, which is very helpful. On the point of team, Anders, whereabouts are the team? Are they all sitting in the headquarters of the organization or do you have them deployed in different locations? A bit of both. We have a core corporate team sitting in the corporate offices in London, or at least working out of them. Now in the flexible working environment, some of them are more and less in the office, including myself. So we have three full-time resources there, plus one shared resource also sitting there supporting us on the admin side. And then we have three more shared resources sitting in our main operating centers across the globe, wearing a compliance hat together with their legal hat, basically, in a 50-50 role. So that's the way we've set up. And I can say a bit more about how we set up because I think we've 
based on experience and having worked in multiple companies, uh, we looked at the organization Cedral when I joined, and I joined back in January 2020 on how we could best organize. And we decided at that point that we wanted to look at uh, focusing on the two key aspects of our program, being the operational side, which we needed to do. And as I said, very agile business, proactive support needed in the business, but then also look at how we could do the team and or the program developments in parallel. So with the operations team, that's led by a head of compliance operations reporting into me sitting in London. And she oversees the day-to-day execution of all our compliance processes, interaction with operational levels of the business. She also particularly oversees the investigations and ID or integrity due diligence program. And that's extremely helpful in my role because that means I don't need to get dragged into all the operational issues that sometimes is a bigger issue, but also sometimes clearly are not and can be solved quite easily. It also helps me extremely well in having a sparring partner that has that full overview of the operations. But then we also realized, and this we actually saw a bit more in practice when we had a couple of bigger issues happening with the business, that it's very easy for everyone to get dragged into operations. But what ends up happening then is you don't get the focus on the program as you required. And in Cedral, there were some enhancements that we needed to make. So we also established a program team sitting at the corporate level that oversees all the program development pieces, so maintenance of directives, establishment of new directives, overall risk mapping, supporting the quality and enterprise risk management function so that we have a clear cradle-to-grave there, three-year plan, interaction with the board, etc. And that's also been very helpful having someone manage that on a day-to-day business, making sure that whenever we get into the operational issues that, that we undoubtedly get into in, in working in compliance, that we still have that ongoing development of the program going in parallel, dragging on us as resources, but also dragging on the cross-functional interactions with HR, interactions with supply chain, establishing the best possible process. So that's been very helpful. And then, as I said, we have operational resources as well with the dual roles, and they're sitting in Dubai, Riyadh, and Houston, which are our key operating centers. And that's also very helpful. Undoubtedly, you know, areas with different challenges as well, those three, and the areas they oversee. So that's also very good. Many of our listeners won't have the intimate knowledge of what the drilling world is about, or indeed specifically sea drill may not necessarily be a brand that they know particularly well. Could you describe the kinds of things that you deal with as a business? And You also mentioned at the top of the conversation there, there are unique challenges for compliance in your industry. I have to ask you if you could just talk to some of those in the context of the world in which you operate, because I think that would be a useful insight for people. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been in oil and gas all my life, really, in in different parts, both in, in an oil company and oil services. But this is my first venture into rig. And rigs are going in typically on contracts over a from everything from a very short span of time to a very long span of time to drill various wells. And what we typically do is we come in, we tender for a contract. It's usually tendered quite early. So let's say a year and a half in advance, because the rig will typically, you want to keep it busy. So it's typically on a contract when you tender it for new work. And then you need to, sometimes this country will be a new country, a country you've never been in, and a country with quite limited onshore facilities because drilling is one of the first things that will happen when you're looking for oil. You need to first drill for oil before you can start establishing 
the facilities that you will find in countries like Angola, where they've drilled oil for years. So they will have a big onshore base. There will be a lot of things, a lot of infrastructure onshore that we can rely on. Whereas you have other countries where, where that's basically not there. Your, your onshore office is more or less in a hotel where people go in and out of rigs. When you have rigs, you typically have 28 to 28 day shifts. So people go in on rotation. So the unique challenges are, first of all, that we are in some jurisdictions that you typically aren't set up that well to understand. And we have to go in sometimes, not quickly because we knew when we tendered, but as one and a half years is a long time. So you start doing something and then you decide we're going to do the rest at the back end when we know what the laws actually are. And in countries in, in Africa and Asia, for example, rules can change quicker than they do in other parts of the world. So also looking at them, trying to understand it in detail too early is really that not that beneficial either. So you want to do it reasonably in a reasonable time before you, you come into the country. So that's one of the things we see definitely that we have very, although tender periods happen early, they're very short. We have to make big decisions quickly. So we need to understand as much as possible about sanctions regime, country establishment regimes, do we need an agent, do we need a partner, do we need some local ownership in an entity, do we need a local entity, can we tender without more than 50% native ownership, etc. A lot of that goes on in the beginning. So that's typically what happens up front. When we're starting to talk about going into the country, then we're and clearly sanctions, in particular now with the Russia sanctions increasing. That's even more something that is on the forefront of everything. And then when you're going into country, you're starting to look at things like you need to understand how the visa process works, how you can operate without having to pay cash, because more cash payments you are, the more likely there is that you can't document where that payment ended up in the end. How can you operate? Can you use a foreign bank or credit card, for example? Sometimes not. How can you set up to mitigate that risk? And how can we make sure our equipment comes in and out the way we need it to do? So it's quite agile in that way. The other thing is that sometimes if equipment fails, it fails big time and the rig is is suddenly not working and you need equipment into country very quickly. So in those instances as well, of course, if you don't already have an established supply chain with established logistics providers, etc., that puts additional strains on the compliance function. In Seedwall, fortunately, we, we do work very proactively and we have a lot of that, but you're always going to end up in situations where it's quicker to get the part from this country. Can we do it? Will that be hit by sanctions, for example, because it's been in another country before? All of that. So a lot of particular interesting things that in my past life I used to have more time planning for, whereas in Seedwall it, it moves a bit quicker. And on, on that point, does it follow, and you mentioned Russian sanctions, and we all understand the implications this has had on countries' access to supply for energy resources now, and that's well documented. You can see it in almost every country around the world, the challenges of having to find alternative options in terms of energy supply, oil being a big part of that. Does it follow the demand on those producers and therefore those within the supply chain of which Seedrill, I guess, is part, has that put added pressure on you in terms of the speed at which you've got to be able to respond to these new demands and new needs in countries around the world? Absolutely, it has, Simon. I think you see, as you say, we do see the Russia sanctions, and of course it hits part of our supply chain. But what we probably see is more of what we're talking about here, the indirect consequences, because Oil and gas has not really been something that's been operating in Russia since 2014 because of the sanctions. The sanctions on oil and gas are quite 
established. They're not part of the new round. But yes, we absolutely see that. We see that there are increased demands in other markets. There are probably developments that are being looked at now that weren't necessarily looked at before, partly because of Russia, partly because the oil price then goes up. And therefore, you look at it. So there's an increased demand for rigs that wasn't necessarily there back a year ago, which means you're also looking for opportunities on how to have the rigs to tender for the opportunities that are there. And it's not more than 12 months ago, everyone was looking at how to get build down the rig fleets. And now everyone is looking at how they can increase their rig fleets, both from the customer side, but therefore also from the supplier side. So that, of course, also leads to a lot. Because of that, there's a lot of refurbishment of rigs that have been stacked for a long time. What typically happens with a rig if it's off contract is it's brought into first warm stacking, where you basically keep it operational and can very quickly move to another field with the same technical specifications. Or you cold stack it, and it will be lying there for a long time, and it really has to be refurbished for large sums of money before you can start using it again. And a lot of that is happening now from us and our competitors is there's a lot of reactivation projects going on. And of course, all of them need predominantly the similar parts, at least, not necessarily the same parts, but similar parts. And some of these parts can only come from a few suppliers. One of the effective things for the US when, when the Russia sanctions came in 2014 is that there are certain parts of subsea control equipment, for example, they can only find in the US. So if you can't export it there, but basically you've effectively shut down subsea oil development in Russia. And it's a bit the same with rig. There are certain parts that you need to get there. So, of course, we're not bringing them to Russia, but there's now a strain on those suppliers just because there is an increased demand for everything they can deliver. And some of these types of equipment have a very long lead time. And one assumes that there will be other providers seeking similar services from that condensed number of suppliers. How do you overcome? I'm sure it's a combination of commercial here as well, but there must be elements within what you can do in your organization to actually affect strong ties and strong relationships with those suppliers such that you get the kind of treatment that you need in order to be able to continue with your operations. Is there anything that compliance specifically can do to actually help to create those strong relationships with suppliers like that? Clearly, it, it mainly lies with supply chain and their lead on it, and we're supporting them. But of course, if you're a, what we're trying to be is a customer who's seen as predictable, who's understandable in our compliance demands, who works with them, who are able to deliver to them when they need to deliver metrics. And more and more, there's <laughs> on compliance in particular in ESG, there's increased interaction both ways about what needs to be delivered in order to clarify that one is doing the ethical thing. So that's there. And then what we can do is also support our supply chain function in a way where Cedral is not seen as a cumbersome com company to work with. Because, of course, clearly, there are a lot of demands on what we do on background checks, and it's only increasing for, I would say, under anti-bribery, it's sort of, to some extent... You can decide a bit what to do because it's an assessment of what is adequate procedures, right? And I think most companies assess that in a similar way. But then you have the new ESG questions, which can be very cumbersome for a supplier to respond to. So how can we best set up for that to be something that seems for them to be a natural part of what they're doing for us rather than us coming in with an audit or a five-page questionnaire that they need to respond to each year where they've responded to half of it before? 
So th this leads me into sort of my one of my pet peeves for from a compliance perspective is integration, right? Is being able to integrate into the business processes and our goal, and I'm not saying we're fully there, but our goal is to work with supply chain in a way where our scope is just part of their process. That when they do what they normally do during a part of the year, and the supplier responds to what they normally respond to, this is just the part of it, and it doesn't become something that is a sort of board level activity at the at their point where where they need to allocate specific resources to respond every time, etc. We see a lot of that from our customers. So what we would prefer is lessons learned from last year ask us the questions that you need to ask this year and we're trying to get there so i think that's absolutely somewhere where we can support our supply chain and the other thing is of course try as much as possible through what we do to help them navigate to suppliers that are actually going to deliver on their promises both to us but also that in general delivers on their promises because if you're not delivering on compliance if you have poor responses on compliance chances are that you're not going to do all the other stuff correctly either. So we do see that the suppliers that we trust the most and that delivers the best, they typically deliver very well both to compliance and to supply chain. So that's clearly another element. We can see some of that earlier because they're going to deliver things to us quite early. You mentioned something just in that part of the conversation there about you didn't use the term stakeholders, but you said working with partners in the organization. You mentioned it at the top of the conversation earlier, you've got two quite distinct teams, an operations team or group that handles the day-to-day -day activity. And maybe we can talk about that in a second. And you also talked about the program team. And you talked about your three-year plan. You talked about development of strategies there. You talked about maintaining some of the practices that you have in, the, in and across the business. You also mentioned about interaction with the board and with functions like HR and supply chain and other parts of the business. Can we spend a bit of time talking about that program team? Because I think for people listening now, that strategic viewpoint as to where you're heading or where you're helping the organization to head and to lead by opening the minds of others outside of compliance to the potential by having genuine integration, that collaborative nature working with other stakeholders in your peer group that run these functions and these organizations and how you elevate and make that visible to the board. Can we, can we talk about that? We've been very lucky. I was very lucky when I joined Cedrill because Cedrill is clearly a collaborative environment to begin with. It's from the companies I worked in as a company where it's very clear that everyone wants to have the common good and to get there. And as long as you can argue your, this is why we need to do things in a different way, people are joining in on that conversation. So so that's always been there. So we've been able to utilize that. We quickly tried to tap into that because we realized that although Cedrill had a good compliance program, it was a compliance program that was written some years back and was mainly focused on the anti-bribery side. So there were clearly things we could also do to improve, but we wanted to improve that together with the business. And improving it didn't mean to just add new things, but actually also take some things out and say, maybe that's not compliance scope. Maybe that's actually commercial. New countries is a good example where I think uh, when I came in and Cedrill owned that process, and I think, yes, we do have critical input, uh, or sorry, compliance on that process. I think we do have critical input into that. But I do think that we're not the natural stakeholder that will be involved at the very earliest time when you're considering going into a country that would be commercial. So it's very, for me, very natural that they own it. But we need to have that discussion with them and what that means and what that means for us still to support although we don't own and to have those conversations about accountability and responsibility i think is very fruitful i 
I'm a big proponent of the RASCI model for defining accountability and responsibility. We use it a lot inside the team, and we also use it on certain projects. And then, yes, I think there's very few areas in Cyril, if any, that is purely owned by one function. And one perspective, for example, could be conflict of interest, right? Clearly, conflict of interest can happen at various stages in the organization. So I'm very happy with us owning the process for establishing that and clearing those. But who needs to be involved in understanding? Do we even understand what all the risks are? I'm not sure. So we need to sit down with the functions and discuss. And that's been very helpful. The way we've done it is we've done it in parts. From the program team, I'm very fortunate to have a woman working for me there who's very dynamic and very forward-leaning and drives those processes. And she's also interacting heavily with the business. And then my job in this is really at the executive area where my job is to get everyone to understand why these things are a risk, why we need to go together in one direction. So we have established an ethics and compliance committee in Cedarwell, which I'm chairing, which the other members are the executive team and the CEO, and I don't report to them. What I do is we make sure that's a forum where we give them the transparency of the risks we have and how we see them evolving through investigations, reports, audits, etc. And then we discuss with them what we think our goals and objectives needs to be. And that is basically the result of the three-year plan. That's, of course, then also discussed with the Audit and Risk Committee to which I report, which is a subcommittee of the board, and we're giving them the same transparency. So by that, we're involving management, and rather than being compliance at this amount to the board or the board saying, you guys need to do this, we're actually discussing it with management. And as I said, with that collaboration background that Cedril has, that's been just very helpful. It, it, we have Sometimes you will get pushback on methodology, do we need to do this now, etc. But then you can have that discussion and sometimes maybe you don't need to do it now. So I think that's absolutely where the program part of it works. I think what's also very helpful is that although we have these two teams in compliance, we sit very closely together and we have team meetings across this every week, which means there's a direct flow between what's happening in operations and what's taking place in programs and operations speak a lot together also without me being involved so that if there are certain developments that or certain challenges in operations then suddenly we get from program that well actually there's a fix to that for example in the GAN integrity portal that we use there's a new functionality this could solve that problem have you thought about that so we also get a lot of that which is great and with collaboration with ISIT as well which is our IT department they're also looking at some of those functionalities again for their things so Again, we're together going towards the greater good, which I think is really interesting. And I think that's great to hear. I particularly love the point you made with regard to the Ethics and Compliance Committee, the fact that the CEO, the leadership team, are this is front and center for them from what you've described there, Anders. One of the things that I often hear, you and I have spoken in the past, connecting all of the compliance-related initiatives and how does an ethical, ethically run business operate every day, connecting that as a set of value drivers that, that effectively enhance value creation across the whole of the enterprise. Now, obviously, with your operations being everywhere around the world and the fact that this realization, if you will, of ethics and compliance being a fundamental tenant, if I can use that term, of the way in which the company is led is pretty forward thinking, frankly, because that's not happening everywhere in companies around the world. 
I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's something that actually, I think my conversation with Cedril on that started before I joined because it was part of my recruitment as well as to, I've been in various companies and I've seen very good things on how compliance operates and also challenges that compliance had. And that was a key conversation. How can we make sure that for Cedril, we can do it in the best way that fits Cedril? And then I think Cedril also made very early on after I joined the strategic decision that this is actually going to be a key area that we can see as a diversifier and where we can actually improve for ourselves. And then again, when you can come with solutions to business problems, that's usually very helpful. And I was fortunate enough to be able to come with some solutions to some business problems about how much time it took to do integrity, due diligence, etc., and how we were able to record and provide transparency about who we had done it on, etc. And that, of course, is also very helpful when you can actually offer something that is quite easy to see has a business consequence. It's not, in all fairness, not all compliance <laughs> is like that. Some compliance is more attempt to have conversations with executives, or I had conversations with executives, and at some point during a year, at least, we tend to come up with the whole not process for process sake. Whereas in the compliance world, actually, sometimes, unfortunately, you have to have process for process sake. <laughs> so I hear what we're saying, but let's at least try to make it as we shouldn't have to. I agree, we shouldn't have to do all record. We shouldn't have to go into a different system. We shouldn't have to do a lot of those things, but we still need to record it. So let's find tools that can help us do that automatically. So that's that was good. We were able to bring that to the business. And I think that was one of the good things that Cedral had. And then also, I think, as in all businesses, if you have one big thing coming that at you and that needs to be resolved, then everyone will rally around it and... It's quite open information at Cedrol. Had a visit in relation to the Lava Jato investigation in Brazil, something that now has been resolved, but uh, without any wrongdoing on Cedrol's side. But clearly, it's something that draws attention to compliance on how we're working, which is also helpful when it comes to priorities. It was fascinating. And I was actually going to ask you how you get those stakeholders bought in, but I think you've answered that question. It's really about not getting them bought in, but understanding how what you do can contribute to their success and make ultimately help them to be more efficient, effective, and indeed make their lives easier in terms of their operations. May I add just to that, Simon, before? I think it's that, and it's the combination of what I don't think is the solution, at least, which I've done in my past as well. So it's come at all. Oh, you can get this size of a fine, or this is the problem, or look at Siemens. That's great, but it's not really relevant. And it's something that happened in the past, and how can that actually be? It's when you get the concrete examples in your own business, those are the examples you need to use. This is the risk we have. This could have gone really wrong, but actually we did everything right. But by chance, we knew another scenario, we may not have recorded the proper information to resolve this. So to get everyone along on the risk ride more than the, we're going to pay huge fines and people are going to prison, executives understand that. And also the further you go down to the business, the less that's going to help. The more they need to understand that doing this will actually lead to problems for the company that will lead to... If we lose an import license, for example, that means we cannot operate in that country anymore. So that's, everyone understands, that's a huge risk. They don't need to know about the potential FCPA. They're more, much more concerned about the lack of ability to do business. So I think that's also a bit of it, is finding the right examples and the right conversations, rather than worst case scenario all the time. 
You mentioned HR earlier, and of course, HR obviously has a very wide remit. Culture is often in the conversation here to enable a compliance and ethics strategy to really have the benefits across the whole of the organization and with every employee within the business. You mentioned that working with HR, obviously, this idea of being able to create a safe environment upon which people feel that they can speak out if they believe they need to offer up insights, if you will, into not elements of poor behavior or things not being done well. Do you think that has any complications as you consider parts of the organization going into some of these quite different markets, different countries you talked about earlier? One assumes there's contractors in the mix here somewhere as well that may not necessarily be on your payroll. How do you, for example, when you think about disclosures or investigations or you mentioned conflicts of interest earlier. How do you ensure that you get everybody in a place where they feel that they can participate? Because you've got quite a fluid workforce, I'd imagine, at certain times when you're in certain operations. How do you, with HR or not with HR, create this sort of culture where everybody sees that as part of the way in which they do what they do every day? If I had the perfect answer, that would be great. I don't think I have. I think we, we, again, I think in Cedarwood, we see a lot of the organization understanding, but it's probably those that are most used to working on compliance issues or so, so they've been trained internally or people that come from other organizations where they've been exposed to that as part of their role. So for us, what we're trying to do is as much as possible, proactively train people that have certain roles on what their compliance scope is. I wouldn't say that we're 100% successful on that. I think it's a, it's an ongoing sort of training and on-the-job training a lot because if you train someone on how to do investigations and then their first investigation is nine months after, it's really not going to help them. It's going to help them that they have it and that the information is there, but what really helps them is sitting down together with someone who's experienced and do it. So for me, I think the answer, although it's I'm not saying that's something we perfectly practice is bringing in mentors and having mentors involved when people are new into doing certain parts of the scope. And then I think, unfortunately, it's also a bit about closing the channels of waivers. So basically, people need to understand that if you're not doing it in the way that is required by law and by the way we've set it up, then ultimately, no one is going to give you the waiver to go to that supplier and onboard them regardless. And we've had situations where we've had outstanding due diligence reviews just, again, because of time and we have to change the supplier quickly. And because of the interaction we have with the executives, it's very clear that the answer is no when you get there, which means no one is going to race it there and you're much quicker going to get people to actually do what they need to do rather than focus on how to get around a problem which is quite common for compliance in housing companies, I think, is that people, if there's a route around compliance, then that will be used. Not always, but it will be used. So you need to take it out because ultimately you're going to be left with exactly the same risk. And usually in those instances, the risk is higher because some of them from a very high level decided to make something, which is even worse than people not following the process. I'm interested in that comment you made about mentors to help support can you give some insight as to the kind of profile of a mentor? Where do these people come from? What got them to becoming a mentor in the first place? And how do they see that as part of their day job, I guess? That's something that we're more thinking to formalize than we have formalized. But in practice, it's what we do is 
we tend to team experienced investigators, for example, in particular, if they sit outside our function, and that would typically be HR, but also legal, and team them up with people who have more experience and can guide them in how to operate our processes. And then also we, I would say, establish our tool in a way that if you follow it, and I don't do too many of these investigations anymore, but I, every now and then I have to do them. And I actually, the tool is great because it actually guides me in what I need to do. So that's also been helpful. But then I think in general, nothing is as valuable as someone from the business speaking about why compliance is important. For example, someone in operations saying, this is important because I experienced this. Or people having been in the car when it's been stopped at a checkpoint and someone tries to get a bit of money that's really where you get a lot of the value because those people are, they become automatically a champion because they then suddenly understand the issue. They've seen the issue. They can describe the issue and they will talk to their peers about it. As I said, we're looking to formalize a bit more, but I think also just making sure that we continuously train and also promote those that make the right decisions, I think is a key part of this. Very interesting. And I wanted to come back to the point about HR and the compliance team and the organization as a whole. When I often hear from individuals in your peer group in, a, in other organizations talking about the importance of how having an ethical business conduct has a fundamental impact on the way in which you can attract the right kind of talent into the organization and obviously retain the kind of talent that you want to retain within the organization. You know, is there any connection that you with HR or indeed with the Ethics and Compliance Committee where you talk about the impact on people retention and retaining those talent skills, which I'm sure are in demand, which we all know they are. Could you just talk about how that connection with what you do and as a business within the Ethics and Compliance Committee, how it has an impact there? I think one of the things that Cedral is really strong on is as part of recruitment and as part of the ongoing HR processes, there's a lot of focus on the right behaviors. And by right behaviors, it's not defined that one behavior is better than the other, but that you have an understanding of what your behaviors are, and then they match within the team you're working in, for example. And that in itself is very helpful when it comes to this ethical mindset, because transparency is one of those behaviors, and clearly something that Seedwell holds very high. And with transparency, less chance of <laughs> of wrongdoing, I would say, or at least less chance of people keeping things to themselves. Then I think in the environment we're in now, I think more and more, and in particular sustainability compliance being one area, but as part of the wider ESG, there's no doubt that ESG is an increasing factor and increasing point for new employees and existing employees to look at. Because now it's we're starting to see the metrics. It's clear to understand where companies want to go. We see in, in our, we have asked the team sessions where the executive team exposed to questions for the whole organization. It's very clear that this is a focus. What are Cedro's thoughts on this? So I think that's absolutely a focus for the organization. And on the compliance side, we're doing what we can to help. But I think for us, it's it's just as much as on, on trying to rectify problems in the organization or challenges in the organization that we see and to help HR and the ethics and compliance committee again by early involvement. Let's say if we have a rig in a certain or several rigs in a certain jurisdiction and we see similar 
softer reports coming that none of them are really something that we can actually address that much because they're anonymous, they're difficult to investigate, etc. But they're also definitely a trend. Then, of course, that's input that is very helpful for HR when looking at an area, looking at their retention. Does this have an impact? Is this actually a problem? If so, or is it just a perceived problem, but still a problem that needs to be solved? So at that area, at least, we're, we're working quite closely with them. I'm going to come back to something on that in a moment, but let me change track a little and just ask you for your observations, comments on, we, we touched on some of the unpredictable events that are happening around the world. We appear to be in a particularly difficult place right now in terms of geopolitical conflict. When you think about the impact on the company, what are the biggest challenge for you, your function, and that, that leadership team that you're working with? to be able to face up to or be prepared or tackle some of the unpredictability. Now, of course, by its very nature, unpredictability means you don't know what's coming. Surely there must be principles and practices and some of the processes that you have as a business that has to be resilient to this ongoing series of events. In my past life and current life, I've been exposed to, as I said, we've had our lavajato. I've I've been involved in my past life. I've seen on or not involved with Unoil, fortunately, but in an investigation about Unoil, at least, and also in, in the former Russia sanctions. And of course, they, all these issues are their own brand of crisis management. It's a version of crisis management, but it's a version of crisis management that is less within the control of the company quite often. You know, it's quite often something that is more difficult for the company con- to control. And I think establishing processes, procedures around it to sort of predict and this is how we're going to act, it's always difficult. It's a bit like a prenup. When everything is great, no one wants to talk about, do you want a search and seizure directive? Or do you want to plan for a potential search and seizure? If you don't, you're likely to do the wrong thing the moment there that someone is at the door. And it may never happen, but it's good to plan for it. So, you know, there are a lot of instances similar to a prenup. So I think that's where... I'm driven by some of these things. There's clearly some things that we do, like we, we do have a search and seizure directive because we know that we've been exposed to that. We know how we need to handle it. But a lot of this is crisis management, and but it's a crisis management different than the rest of the crisis management. So you can't follow a crisis management book because communication, for example, is, well, if you communicate one thing now, which is actually what everyone wants to say, so let's... Take a, just an example of, let's say you're accused of a bribe. Everyone wants to send out a press statement saying, we didn't do it. And that's great. But do we actually know that no one did it? Because typically the allegation is five, six years back. So you will have to find out. So in the meantime, let's put out the statement that you don't have to go back and, and uh, kill later, right? Because if you say you didn't do it and you did it, then you have to go out and say you did it. <laughs> so you don't want to be in that situation. And that's a crisis management that I think, to some extent, sits a bit outside of the normal sort of compliance role. And it's typically handed over, whereas in seed role, that's also managed by compliance and probably a bit to do with my background as well. But that's it's always interesting. But yeah, I, I would say at least what you need to do is, again, prepare something like the Ethics and Compliance Committee have a good prepared way of working with the board and the directors and the owners because you need to inform them very quickly and have established relationships so that you can very quickly call head of communications and say, we need a holding statement for this or these are, have lists of the people you need to involve. You're never going to get into a situation where it's by numbers because all such situations are different. I remember Russia, the first batch of Russia crime sanctions, but they came. 
I was like six months into a deputy role. The GC of the company had just resigned and I had to basically send an email to everyone say, you're not allowed to work in Russia, which was very popular, as you can imagine. <laughs> Who is this guy? But with the, as far as I recall, with very little sleep and backing, vital backing from key stakeholders, we were able to quite quickly establish a process as a gatekeeper, at least, where you can start. And then you, after that, you can work out how can we actually do it? And there's probably a lot of ways to do it. Let's at least make sure that you have control over the biggest risks. I think that's where the focus needs to be. And sometimes you tend to forget that in the midst of all operations. And that's where operational people are typically better, I would say, than lawyers. They, What's the biggest risk? The biggest risk is oil getting into the sea. That's our biggest thing in our business. So from that, we work backwards on what are our biggest risks. And whenever you have a problem, what's the biggest consequence we can see and get control over those. And that visibility of these issues, you said you work with the Ethics and Compliance Committee on, on making sure that these kinds of risk mitigation strategies, if I can call them that, are visible with them and with the board and the owners. Yes, previously more by, yeah, we did it that way in practice. And that's part of the reason why the Ethics and Compliance Committee was established, because we clearly saw that value that just having that interaction with the board is not very helpful because all parts of the business are going to touch this. Being able to share at least an amount of information with everyone is very helpful. And also you get a lot of good input from that because they will see what the potential consequences are. And for example, if you have a dawn raid in Lavajato in Brazil, your biggest consequence is that Petrobras will immediately raise your risk rating to red. That's your number one problem, that you're not going to sell anything to Petrobras until you do something about that. Although it doesn't seem from a legal mind, that's my biggest problem at the point. That's from a business perspective, it's our biggest problem. Here's a slightly softer extension of those thoughts. When you think about the multitude of challenges that your team faces and how you ensure the commercial operation of the business and your employees are protected, what do you think is the opportunity for compliance in a much more broader context to be able to help indirectly influencing society more positively as a whole? You talk about many of the countries in the world that you go into, I can only imagine what some of those countries are like to operate in. Uh, and I say only imagine. But by upholding the kinds of standards that you uphold when you go and operate within those countries, you talked about that period in advance of going into a market. You, of course, are going to engage with a all sorts of organizations and individuals within these markets who won't be adept to the kinds of things that you think about and your organization thinks about every day. How can what you do have a positive impact on those that haven't been touched by the sorts of issues that we've been discussing? I think the magnitude of companies like ourselves coming in has absolutely a consequence because they also see that we all operate in a similar way. So more and more now I see and both in this job and the previous companies, I see the local operators, the local national oil company, for example, starting to have the same evaluation, starting to think about gifts and hospitality in a different way, understanding that's maybe an issue. But it's more and more because you have the conversation on the underlying drivers. Again, I don't think the whole old approach of coming in and saying FCPA is the big thing. Yes, but why are the Americans? They shouldn't care about what we're doing. That's normally the answer. But if you talk more about this is what it leads to. And I think, again, the increased focus on ESG helps that. 
because this is what it leads to. It's not good for you. It's not good for anyone. Everyone agrees. Very seldomly are the people you're talking to actually the people that would get money in their pockets. <laughs> They're usually people that wouldn't. So they don't have a vested interest in something going wrong either. So I think more and more absolutely you see a development. And also because it's a requirement from us when we look at our supply chain in particular. And it, usually it's a, it's a influence you can easily make downwards and upwards in your chain, in your food chain. So... Of course, if you look at the oil companies, can probably easier influence the national oil companies, whereas we can easier influence the local suppliers because we work directly with them. And that starts again for me with our due diligence, and that's why our due diligence is less of a just a question list, but more of a sort of interaction where both we ask them are things they can actually give input, they can get credit for things being good as well. We don't want to be in a situation where everything is just bad. They are in a position where if they have good systems in place, we consider that to mitigate a lot of the risk they would normally have. The more they understand that's the conversation to have, the more we see them actually putting that in place. Very interesting. I can picture some of the scenarios that you're describing here as you go into some of the markets that you serve or you operate within around the world. Let me change track. Last question for you. Areas of your program that you have been particularly proud of? things that are going on in the business today that you feel personally very proud of that you can see having a positive impact on the business? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say, I think I would actually say, although not positive influence maybe on the business, but I think our investigations program is has been a great achievement in the way it's been set up and the way we're able to now conduct investigations in a way where they are confidential, they are they're transparent to the people that need to know but they are confidential, they're handled by compliance, has full ownership and control over them. But also we have very good interaction with the business, both in particular at the back end when it comes to implementation of recommendations, etc. We have a good transparency with the board. So I think the whole process set up around that, that's one of our great achievements. The other thing which I think Cedro has always been strong on is the due diligence side. Uh, but I think we've improved that vastly again over, over the last couple of years, also into a situation where there are some that used to be higher regarded higher risk that we're now more comfortable. So I think that's also a very good achievement. But the best achievement I see is we have an increase in reports and we have an increase in training. So people are more interested in taking compliance training and people are reporting on more things, which is also good because I don't think we reported enough when I joined. So we're seeing the right development. We're seeing the uptick in ethical awareness, I would say, which is great. Fascinating. Anders, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you ever so much for spending the time today. And it was an absolute delight to hear about what's going on at Seadrill. The team, the engagement across the business, both within the various functions, as well as visibility of what the team is doing to ensure that the C-suite actually have the visibility in the board as well. So thank you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Risky Business. For more insights and resources, check out the show notes or go to ganintegrity.com and be sure to follow along wherever you get your audio.